Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey gang, what's going on? It's Monday, and that means it's time for a new episode of Ranching Reboot. I'm your host, Brian Alexander. You can find all my social media accounts under the name Red Hills Rancher. If you've been listening for a while, you know this season of Ranching Reboot is sponsored by Land Trust. Land Trust is your number one stop if you're looking for some outdoor recreation. Hunting, fishing, mountain biking, ranch experiences, calf brandings, and just plain old hiking, you can find it all on Land Trust. With access to over a million acres, I can promise that Land Trust has something for you. For all you landowners, Land Trust is a great way to make some extra income without a lot of extra effort. If you'd like to know more, just go to www.landtrust.com reboot or click the link in the show notes to get started today. Support for this episode also provided by Wild Ass Soap Company. I just made another order of deodorant. If you aren't using natural beef tallow deodorant made without toxic aluminum from Wild Ass Soap Company, what are you using? Why do I use beef tallow for deodorant? There's lots of good reasons. First off, it's all natural and way more sustainable than palm oil. And when you get your order, you'll notice that their deodorant is just a little bit gray. That's because the Harris family puts activated charcoal to absorb and fight odors. Currently available in seven different scents, get some today for all the people in your life that you care about. Friends don't let friends use aluminum deodorant. Couple of notes for those of you listening on release day or the first few days, I'm in Hawaii with the wife for a little vacation for a few days. And hopefully while I'm out here, I'll be able to make a connection with somebody on Oahu or maybe on one of the other islands and get over there and be able to do a podcast. No promises as I go to edit. I'm still trying to get that lined up. So anyway, car guys, get ready for a special treat. My guest today talks about the lessons he learned over a long 15 year career in professional racing. We talk about cars, trucks, racing, and soil and cows. Buckle up and let's take a ride with Taylor Moyer. All right, Taylor, we need to, we need to try to pick this conversation back up because it was a lot of fun. Uh, so for those of you, well, we've been going for a few minutes, Taylor and I've been talking here. So, uh, my guest today, Taylor Moyer, why don't you introduce yourself real quick, Taylor? Thanks, Brian. Yeah. My name is Taylor Moyer, uh, somewhere in my mid thirties, just getting over the hump. Uh, we farm and ranch out here in North Carolina where I've lived since 2006. Okay. Um, why don't Kind of start us off a little bit, maybe go over a little bit of family history and then uh, tell me a little bit about your operation there. Sure. I have a, I have a family history that I don't know if it's that unique, but it's probably one of the things I'm most proud of in life. Um, 
bear with me for a second because we got to go down both sides. Uh, my mom's side is a um, produce company or produce farm in the state of New Jersey, about an hour outside of New York City. That's Battleview Orchards. Um, my cousin Kyle Applegate is the manager and part owner now, him and his wife, and they are the fourth generation. So our great-grandfather, Leslie Norman Applegate, uh, he started it, started as a potato farm, commercial potato farm. And Leslie Norman Applegate was actually the first ever national president of FFA, which is cool. That is um, cool. My grandparents, Kate. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty neat. Um, I get to see pictures of him a lot. And when I, I just do a little speaking for FFA events, people always know who he is. So that's, that's important to me. Um, my grandparents on that side bought that farm from great grandpa, lock, stock and barrel at the age of 28 after running it for 10 years, you know, different generation. Okay. Um, they, they actually just moved back up there, which is awesome. They had that side of the family sells the whole farm, the whole operation, everything to the next generation at a very young age. And my grandfather says that's important so that you have time to make your own mistakes and recover from those mistakes. And whoever owns that farm lives in the farmhouse right next to the, you know, the main operations and everybody else kind of moves away and gives them that space. So my grandparents bought it when they were 28 uh, and they turned the whole thing into 100% direct to consumer, pick your own. Um, they employ my, my, my family still employs anywhere from, I think it's like two to 300 seasonal workers through pick your own season, which is generally high school kids and teachers that are out on summer break. Um, and they roll people through those orchards and we, they have to have cops, um, you know, manage traffic. So grandparents bought it. They really innovated the, the market and, uh, turned everything direct to consumer. Um, my uncle Scott and my aunt Lisa, who I looked up to, they bought it when they were 28 after operating for 10 years and they took it two steps further. Um, there's a bakery there now. There's hot cider. There's cold cider. They press their own cider. There's hot donuts. That's what I meant to say. People line up for the donut window. In fact, they had to put a window on the side of the market just for the hot donuts so people wouldn't clog up the store waiting for them. Uh, and then just recently, my cousin Kyle and his beautiful wife, Maggie, uh, they've taken it over. Pretty neat. So that's my mom's side. My dad's side is Okmulgee Dairy in Amelia, Virginia. And my Dairy? great grand, yeah, my great grandpa Charles uh, started that. That was 1895. Uh, they're they're a dairy farm. Then my great my uh, grandpa Charles as well, and then my grandmother um, farmed it for a while. Now my uncle Larkin and his two sons. Uh, Brandon and Jeremy are owners and everybody, all my family, um, except for my, my direct mom and dad, uh, they live up there and there's at Thanksgiving, there's four generations at the table. And I think, I think my, my grandma has seven great grandbabies or maybe eight or nine that sit at the table with her, which is really neat to me. Um, that, that farm recently, a couple of years ago went all robotic, which is, which is pretty neat. Um. You know, I didn't know how I felt about robotics, but it really frees up my cousin's lifestyle to be able to go to the lake once in a while and, and, and make dairy farming a little less monotonous. And, uh, the technology part is, is so interesting to me. The cows are at such peace. The barn is so quiet. Uh, all the production went through the roof. I mean, those cows are happy. They get milk between two and seven times a day. Uh, and I think they had some crazy, they had like a 94 or 95% herd adoption rate from going from a milking parlor to the, to the self milking. 
um, robotics barn, which is is really neat. Um, That's only about four hours away from me. As I said, that's really interesting. Like the differences, you know, in production quality and and I guess quality of life for the cattle when they went to the robotic milking. And I was trying to figure out why, like from an animal behavior, animal psychology point of view, and they like consistency. And yeah. You know, if there's some cows that feel they need to be only need to be milked twice a day and you're trying to shove them through the barn three times a day, they're not going to like that. And if you got cows that want to be drained seven times a day and you're only doing it three, they might get a little bit pissy. So I I can see how that how some of those systems like I'm kind of passingly familiar with like a Lele system. Like I got a friend on TikTok that's got one in Iowa and it's I mean, it's cool. Like it. Yeah, that's that's what they have automatically mixes all the feed and everything. All all you have to do is just make sure the kitchen's full of ingredients and go check the milk tank and reset trouble lights. Pretty neat system. But but with every technology, there's always, there's a trade-off, right? So what's, you know, the trade-off here is, yeah, we can externalize a lot of this and, you know, we can increase some efficiency. Someday all that computer crap's going to quit working. Oh yeah. Yeah. Luckily, you know, my, my two cousins, Brandon and Jeremy, one's a little older than me. One's a little younger and I, I can't speak for them and I don't want to speak for them. They seem happy with their system. Um, but I, I, you know, I've been around them, whether, you know, we're just eating dinner or whatever. And now they get all, any sensor gives them a text message right in their pocket. So I could see it still being hard to disconnect, but, um, my uncle is still a herdsman. He spends a lot of times with the cows and he's, as most herdsmen are, you know, he, he very much those, those cows are his, that's their lifeblood. You know, I still see him down there spending a lot of time just hanging out with the cows. Cause you don't have that everyday touch and feel like you had, you know, in our case it was, or their case, it was two times a day before. So I can't speak too much for them, but from the technology side, it's really neat. You know, they don't have the self mixing feeder. They still mix feed. Um, they do have the little R2D2 robots that keep that feed pushed up and the barn cleans itself and the curtains go up and down for, you know, it's all climate controlled. It does all that itself. Um, but yeah, it's really neat. We, when COVID hit to spread out as a family, that barn had just got done and we actually did Thanksgiving just in what would be the feed aisle, big concrete, you know, and we, we were able to spread out a little bit. My grandparents were older and, uh, we, you know, we had kids zooming around on tricycles and it was the most pleasant experience. We had, we had COVID or we had Thanksgiving dinner with the whole herd of dairy cows, which is pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. Would yeah. be pretty cool. So you haven't said anything about your operation yet. Yeah. So I still got to get to that. <laughs> so my mom and dad both went to Virginia Tech and uh, that's where most of the people in my family go. And oddly enough, they kind of ran away together and went to Vermont. They both left their respective operations. And uh, when I was born, they were growing apples. Um, the, the west side of Vermont, Addison County, where I'm from and was born and raised. At one time was like the top, I think, apple producing county in the nation before it migrated to the West Coast. Um, about fourth grade, I think the seemingly to me, it uh, looked like a lot of the apple production went to the West Coast and a lot of trees were pushed out. We got into beef cattle farming real big. Um, I, my, we had a little brood herd already, but we got um, into the stocker cattle business. So I was raised on a 1990-something Moto 4 with a milk crate on the front, string and polywire, left and right. That's what was normal to me. Uh, my dad, I feel like my dad was, 
you know, now that I have my own operation, I feel like my dad was pretty ahead of his time. We had a really cool old milk barn. We turned into some pretty state-of-the-art facilities. What what time frame was that? That would have been 96 through 2006. Okay. Okay. But just, just, I was just trying, that was just for me to get in my, get a sense of when, when this was going on. Cause yeah, there in the late nineties, there were a lot of people starting to experiment, you know, with running electric fences daily, you know, and daily moves running a lot of yeah. poly wire. And I think if I was trying to do it with the equipment, if I was trying to do it today with the equipment that was available in 1995 and set up daily poly wire paddocks, I probably wouldn't do it very long. Yeah. I remember a lot of slivers in my hands from just like three eighths fiberglass posts that weren't sun guarded and you'd grab them to throw them on the four wheeler. I was little, I don't know how much help I actually was, but I thought I was doing something. Um, so he'd spend all about this time of year, he'd be in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, with a lot of his friends from college buying, you know, pot belly loads and gooseneck loads. And then when the snow would lift and the grass would grow, which uh, the West side of Vermont grows really good grass. It's a big dairy farming country. All the Cabot cheese comes out of there. Agrimark. Um, man, the, the semis would show up and it, we'd get four to six to 800 stalker cattle every year. And we would rotate them on grass. Uh, dad had them, the pile of books he gave me of, you know, that he had read, you know, he went and saw Temple Grandin speak. That's why our facilities were built. Um, he did a lot of research in Australia. Uh, so polywire daily moves. We run it, ran it, uh, you know, he had everything trained to a bell. We could move six, 800 cows with a bell and move them on. And he was working some other jobs at the time, but we did that for most of my childhood. I showed cows real big and we had a brood herd and some meat businesses, a meat business. And we did a lot of that. And, uh, simultaneous to that, I always had a passion for taking junk and building other junk, right? I had go-karts and four-wheelers and snowmobiles as every kid in Vermont did and big lifted trucks and dirt track enduro cars. And my best friend drove a sprint car that I worked on all the time, um, I had a really great school system that had uh, engineering and architecture classes. I learned CAD, which was dangerous because now I could design all those crazy thoughts in my head. And my best friend was in a machine shop class and he could cut them out. And we were just kind of, I had the best childhood ever of, um, we worked really hard. We played really hard. We weren't into too much trouble, just driving stuff too fast or, or we were real creative kids. Um, and that's where I, I always liked farming, but I just never thought of, I, I liked racing more to be frank. And I liked creating and thinking and welding and bending metal, those dirt sprint cars, you know, they're just sheet metal and some tubing and they're just raw speed and power. And I was enamored with them. So I started to research what type of racing I might want to be in. I've always had, I've always thought way out, especially in a young age. World outlaws looked awesome, but man, 280 days gone and the pay wasn't good. Formula One, I really had no interest in. I was too much of a little redneck kid. And NASCAR had this, NASCAR was just starting to get a lot of engineers. Um, so I went, I went to the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and got an engineering degree. I knew I was going to have to work a lot through college to, you know, help support myself a little bit. And uh, it seemed like a good fit because I could probably work for a team down there while I went to school versus, versus go to Virginia Tech and 
probably milk cows or flip burgers and then try to get in the sport. So I did. I moved down in 2006, the day after I graduated high school. Um, and I started volunteering on some teams. I was pretty athletic. So I, I started doing some pit crew stuff as well, changed tires. And that all morphed into, I had a 15-year NASCAR career that I just retired from or ended or stepped away from, however you want to say it, uh, this season. Um, back up a little bit. I, I moved from the middle of nowhere, rural Vermont, which I love, to a big city. You know, Charlotte's a million people now. And I don't know if that includes the suburbs, which are surrounded or not, but a lot of culture shock. And it didn't take me long to really miss wide open spaces and cows, stuff like that. I uh, had some good friends that, or I made some good friends that lived east of Charlotte and we were driving to their hometown one day and we drove through this county, Union County, which is where I live now. And I finally hit some roads and hit some area that looked like home. And I always said, if I'm going to stay here, I'll live there. And uh, after I graduated college, I moved out to the middle of nowhere, knowing nobody. And I bought a house and I kind of ingrained myself in this community. And it looks really pretty. It looks a lot like Vermont where I grew up, kind of rolling hills. We have um, a lot of row cropping, a lot of poultry production. It's, it's, it's actually not as much as we used to have. We used to be the second biggest poultry producing county in the nation is what I've been told. Um, Hogs are big yet, down that way, aren't they? Uh, you got to get further east for hogs. You got to get all the way to the coast. So probably go another hour, another hour east to here. They'll start and then they'll run for another two or three hours to hit the coast. We don't have a lot of hogs. We have a lot of turkeys and a lot of chickens. Now, we used to have a lot more. There's a lot of old, you know, chicken houses growing up in the weeds, but still a lot of poultry producers around here. A lot of Tyson plants. So anyway. Uh-oh. I did what everybody does. I thought to start to farm, I would need to go buy land. And I thought the best way to buy land that I could probably afford wasn't going to be land that was listed publicly. I'd, you know, maybe something the community would want to sell to a younger, younger producer with aspirations. And darn if that's not how it worked out after eight, nine years. I had been, before I traveled full-time with NASCAR, I had been um, helping some guys uh, row crop at night after work and on the weekends um i'm always eager to jump in a tractor a semi and grind some gears and run some gps plant beans whatever and uh, the people of the community kind of told me about a little old a really old rundown piece of property that wasn't really publicly listed but i could probably get bought and i did in 2018 i bought it it was 30 years abandoned the barnyard was but there was still some cows here uh in the fields they had been kind of kept up and it was actually some friends of mine who had the cows here. Yeah, so I bought that in 2018. And then in 2019, I got promoted to crew chief, uh, which is kind of the, um, that's basically like the head coach of the race team. So it was a lot of responsibility. And I, the last five years, did this juggling of, of building my farm and my operation while, while traveling full time and, and living this career, which, if looking back, probably helped my, operation not that it's extremely efficient but it's pretty darn efficient because i didn't have any time to be here and baby it so the type of cow that stays here is the type of cow that doesn't need propping up because well i can't be here to do that right okay talk a little bit about like the road schedule and a work schedule for a nascar crew chief just 
I kind of have an idea, just so the listeners have an idea what kind of commitment that job is. Sure. Uh, well, it's the type of job, like there's other jobs that you, it's the type of job if your cell phone rings, you answer it and your, your whole schedule, everything is, is governed by a sanctioning body, right? Um, if, if you're working and they decide they're going to throw in a surprise test, you go to the airport and go. Um, so it's kind of a 24 hour a day, seven day a week job. Now I, I very strongly believe in work-life balance and the last team I was at, they gave me as the leader of my team, the freedom to um, lead my team how I chose. And I chose to make sure everybody had one day off a week or, you know, a full day, wake up, you're at your house to work, you know, to do whatever you want. You can go to bed at your house, but there is some people that literally work seven days a week. Um, and that, that takes a toll. Some of our schedule gets really crazy. Just the logistics we did, we would do a West coast swing. So we'd come sometimes do things like fly home, uh, go right to the shop and go back to work. And that's not all the time, a more traditional schedule when you really get in the swing of things is you would, you know, fly out on the Thursday night, um, practice and qualify on Friday More practice on Saturday, race Sunday, fly back Sunday night, generally get Monday off. That's when I was on the cup level for, with Hendrick motorsports. The last five years I was on the Xfinity level with junior motorsports. So we raced on Saturday nights. So we would get Sundays off, which was, which was really good for work-life balance and uh, and then we'd be back at work Monday, work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. The semis would usually pull out Wednesday night or Thursday, depending on how far they had to drive. Um, so, so the cars are in the shop, like the haulers get back sometime late Monday, yep. Tuesday and Wednesday to prep the car yep. and then load it back up to go to the next track. Yep. And turn the whole, you know, turn the truck around. So resupply the truck, resupply the toolboxes. But we know we would have 10 cars, 10, 15 cars in a fleet. So your next couple of weeks cars are at the shop being prepared ahead of time. So yeah, the truck comes back, dumps a car, it goes to tear down. Those cars go all the way apart every single time, at least okay. for all the teams I work for, all the way apart. So they're not like your driver wasn't running the same exact chassis and engine every weekend. No. Nope. And it wasn't just like the super speedway car or the speedway car or the road course car. You had all these different cars. So there was always a good car. You'd build yep. a car. I get it. Yep. So we would have, and our cars would have, even with the way cars are now, where they are kind of um, a little more cookie cutter, uh, you still had, like you mentioned, we had four super, in my fleet, we had four super speedway cars, really more like two primaries and two backups, two that are older. Two that are like your silver bullet you've polished on all season. Then road course racing towards the end, we had three, you know, because you always have a backup car in the trailer too when you go to the tracks. So you're, you're bringing two cars a weekend per team. Um, and then you have, you know, we had a pretty big fleet of intermediate cars, like six really good chassis, newer cars, two old other ones. And then short track cars are the same way, maybe a little less, maybe three or four. And, you know, there's a higher chance you're going to tear stuff up at a short track. So aerodynamics generally matter a little less mechanical grip matters a little more so you kind of make your decisions on cars and chassis based off probability you're going to tear them up you know you're always looking ahead you're always planning i'm generally we were sitting down with their engineering team four weeks out putting out a build sheet the shop is assembling it the, the car gets worked on in the shop until it goes to your team specifically probably two weeks out you start with your setup you go on the pull down rig um the amount of engineering and uh, logistics and technical stuff in NASCAR is truly fascinating. 
I think it's catching on, man. If if TV would get on board with showing more behind the scenes of what goes into it, I think every anybody I've ever introduced to that side of things is just enamored, and it's the really the interesting part. Oh, I I one hundred percent agree with you, and I just just for clarity, I don't really follow any kind of racing anymore. Like it's interesting. I love like I would rather be able to walk through the pits and take pictures of cars and look at cars like you know Formula One cars or like uh, uh, some of the, like the Le Mans prototypes. Like get me around one of those with a camera for an hour, just please. Just, yeah. Yeah. To see all the little details and how everything's put together and, well, why did they put that pipe underneath that tube instead of over that tube? Why is that clamped yep. this way? Seeing things like that in the engineering, like the engineering and the thought that goes into Formula One cars is just blows my mind. I had a, you said that uh, you looked at getting a job with Formula One and I just thought of this. I had a, I had a friend of mine that I knew when I lived in Virginia. We were like, we were in a Subaru club. He actually uh, just finished a one-year contract with Red Bull Racing in their power school. Yeah, and he was with their powertrains division. He doesn't. He he won't say anything about what he worked on or anything <laughs> cool there. He's just like it was a one-year contract and it was the best time of my life. Like I get yeah. it. But so, like I said before, I kind of I grew up watching NASCAR, like Dale and Daryl, Dale Jarrett, Mark Martin, like you know, some of the old time greats. Um, I remember kind of, you know, it would have been 20 or 25 years ago when Ryan Newman really started winning races. Yep. And he won a lot of races and yep. yeah, there was a lot of TV attention and well, why was Ryan Newman winning races? Because he was an engineer <laughs> and he was one yep. of the, he was one of the first engineers to be in NASCAR and really apply a lot of high level engineering knowledge towards running the team and running the car. And that's why he could make three more laps on a tank of fuel than anybody else and win races. But, um, yeah, then, you know, the car tomorrow, I remember the, you know, the era of the, of all the different bodies and I'd have to go through and check different templates and like, oh, well, the Fords were too fast this weekend. So we're going to lay their spoiler down a little bit, or, you know, we're going to make them run less tape on the front end. I remember things like that. And it seemed like there was a lot more freedom in the rules to find yeah. things and be creative and and build the car is that is did i do i have that right yeah you nailed it and i know if you know even formula one has a cap a salary or you know a builder's cap they can only spend so much and they've capped the wind tunnel time or whatever because racing's a competition so you end up becoming victims of your own creation and that's probably what happened in nascar you know we had wind tunnels we had multiple wind tunnels we had Rolling road uh, wind tunnels. Rolling road, desert proving grounds where you could go. We had an unlimited testing. At one time in my career, 2013 and 14, I was a data acquisition engineer. So I was a test engineer. I'd instrument cars and go to the tests. And I was gone more days than the guys on the season because we had unlimited testing. We could take off in Concord if the... I was supporting Jimmy Johnson. I don't know if anybody knows that guy. And Dale Earnhardt Jr. I don't know if anybody knows him. Um, but those are the two cars I supported. And I've heard of it, both of them. Yeah, so if they had a bad race, it was nothing for, at the time, Steve Letarder, Chad Knauss to call me and say, we're going to go test Nashville Tuesday, get a car ready Monday. So I would instrument a car Monday. We could take off in Concord, North Carolina on one of the Hendrick planes. It's uh, about an eight-hour pull to Nashville, super speedway. 
or maybe nine with the trucks. Anyway, they could leave Monday night. We would take off at 7 a.m. East Coast time. We would land at 7 a.m. Nashville time. The track opened at eight, get Chick-fil-A on the way, test all day, come back. I mean, we would do that every single week. It was unlimited, you know, and I think that's where the budgets just, they got to be so extreme. And if you, I'm sure all the owners felt like if they weren't going through those steps, they weren't keeping up. And, um, you know, we were, all those bodies were hand-shaped. They, they really called that the twisted sister era of uh, NASCAR. If you want to Google some of those cars, the, some of the overhead shots and the, to trick the body templates, these met, these are just, there's a pieces of metal sculpture. I think the talent, the talent that seven body hangers could put into these things that started as flat sheet steel. It, it was amazing. They were, they were works of art, but yeah, I'm sure the cost got crazy. And, um, yeah, we went towards NASCAR has gone towards lowering the cost for that stuff, which I personally don't know if it really works because you just move your, you just move what you're spending the money on. You were spending it on the building and creation. Now you're spending it on technology and the computers to, you know, we simulate everything now. Right. Um, in, in our computers as engineers, we had a programs we just called sim, which is simulation. And you could run every setup you could ever dream of at any racetrack. 1 million infinite times in your computer and test anything you wanted before you put it in the physical race car, right? Well, it takes a lot of manpower, technology, and salaries to generate those sim programs. Um, and now everything's done in simulators where the drivers get in a big cockpit with a helmet and everything on and seatbelts that pull and G-forces. And we run for hours before we go to the track and those things. So you're just shifting where the money's spent, I feel like. But yeah, the the, the days of... Create, uh, being creative, uh, bending the rules, uh, bending metal here, bending metal there. A lot of that stuff has gone by the wayside, which is what I really enjoyed. Um, I re I was a design engineer before I got on the race engineering side. So I was running CAD and, and welding and bending metal and trying my best to get along with those old guys. And that was what was really enjoyable for me. And yeah, that's just not around anymore. Things change. Is there a rule in the NASCAR rule book that you caused to be created? I mean, I don't, well, this is the first year, first year in a long time. I haven't had a NASCAR license, so I guess I was on open, but yeah, there's been some, there's been some rules here or there. I think everybody's got one or two created for them. I mean, if Chad Canals has probably half the book. Yeah. Chad's got a lot of it. Yeah. But I mean, your job is to work in the gray area. It was a lot of times when I was a young engineer, it would be our, my job in the off season or, you know, me and a team of guys or people, we had women too, um, to open the rule book and figure out if they left anything out in the updates or figure out where the rules weren't and work there. I, I remember building go-karts 15, 18 years ago. And you get that, you get the rule changes in your grubby little paws in January and you yep. go over them with a fine tooth comb. You're like, oh. It doesn't say that I can't do this. Yeah. Let's give this a shot. Go to the yeah. shop and spend 50 or 100 hours bending metal and inhaling fiberglass fumes and huffing <laughs> dust. And you come out with something that works really great for one race. And then there's a new rule in the rule book. <laughs> yep. That, that happens a lot. I've, I've always said that NASCAR, NASCAR has got to be the only professional sport I, I know of that the rules literally change in the middle of the game. You know, we would get rules updates throughout the season, left and right. Just like you talked about, it would be something one team found that was within the rules that they get away with for a couple of weeks and they stink up the show. And NASCAR says, nope, 
that's, that's now illegal. And they switch. And uh, it's generally about the time that all the teams are trying to put it in their cars. And it, you know, I mean, we've had rules changed in the middle of the race. Um, so it's a, maybe that's just one of its parallels to farming for sure. You think you're in control, but you're not really in control of anything. Yeah, those, the mid-race rule changes would really, would really bother me. I would, the question I want to ask now is, since they've taken some of the creativity out of it, like, you know, with how to creatively shape your body to get around the templates. I mean, now they've got a laser scanner booth and like, if you're off by what, how much, how much, how much tolerance do you have now on the body or on the majority? Yeah. On the majority of the body, it's, uh, like 60,000 in or out. So you're an eighth year. It started zero, go 60,000 in or out, 16th of an inch. Um, some of the windows and stuff have more or less tolerance, but yeah, everything's within a, call it a 16th or an eighth inch on the. That's, that's just, that's nuts. That's yeah. just nuts. Well, it's crazy to think too, all these parts and I don't, all these parts are made of, um, they're more like fiberglass, you know, they're not, it's not, it's, they're not carbon fiber. They're composite. We call them composite bodies. I don't know exactly what the material properties are. But we live in North Carolina and we race through the summer where most tracks we're at is 90 plus degrees. All this stuff expands and contracts. So when you see all the NASCAR guys on the cup series walking around with the umbrellas, like they're a bunch of trophy girls, all they're trying to do is they're trying to put heat on certain areas of the body and they're trying to shade other areas to stop the thermal expansion and contraction before they get to the LIS machine, which is the laser scanner. Because I imagine if it one side gets too hot and the other side's in the shade, it might warp a little bit and you might yeah. fail tech. Yeah. And there's areas you want to grow and there's areas you don't want to grow and there's areas you don't want to grow till you get through tech. And then you want it to grow between tech and getting on the racetrack. You know, it's all a game. Everything's thought out. It's all a orchestrated game. Everything's a game. See, I'm used to going through technical inspection. Like we would have. Before you go on the track, there's a safety inspection just to make sure yep. like, you know, your brakes all have cotter pins in them and everything <laughs> safety wired correctly. Like, you know, the basic stuff, which it might shock you to people show up with go-karts at the racetrack and don't even have their brakes safety wired. Yep. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll do a little safety wire clash right here, right live, you know, nine to 12 per inch and make sure you put a curly cue on it. But I'm used to going through inspection, like having to make weight, you know, they put you in. Sometimes they'd put you in the box to make sure that, you know, you just fit the gross dimensions. We didn't really have a lot of rules on our body work because most of the rule was in the engine and there wasn't a whole lot you could do to the body to make it go faster. Everything was in the engine. But there were times where you'd get your engine back in a box of parts. Yep. Like, oh, yeah. okay, cool. I've got a race like tomorrow morning <laughs> at 10 o'clock. I guess I'll put this back together and see if I can make it work again. What's yep. uh, how, how bad is teardown? Like post-race teardown? Do they... Do they take it down in nuts and bolts? Not anymore so much because our pre, just like you're talking about, when we would unload from the trucks before we would ever touch the racetrack, we had a seven, seven station inspection process, which started at engine. We had engine, safety, chassis, body, you know, blah, 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 blah. So then you do all that. You go through it back. If you, depending on what the weekend schedule was, you'd go back through that again um, before qualifying, depending whether it's an impound race or not. You might go back through it again before the race. So They've generally seen most of the stuff. Then you race and they generally 
tear down. The winner gets tore down the most, um, depending on what type of racetrack it is. Also dictates, you know, road course, they might pull the transmission all the way out and count teeth on gears because there's really? gear and transmission rules. Oh, yeah. Um, big would... events, big events. They might bring you back to the if they're going to tear you all the way down, they'll just take the car from you and you'll meet NASCAR back at their tech center on Tuesday. They'll bring it back in their hauler where you can't touch it. And then they'll tear you down to the bolts. And I have been tore down to the last bolt one time. And it's a long, arduous process of being stared at and yelled at. Is, why would they do that? Uh, here's a great story. So my first, my first year, um, one of, I had nine different drivers. I had, I had an, what we called an all-star car for the, the, the team I worked for, which was Junior Motorsports, which Dale Earnhardt Jr. owns. And his sister and brother-in-law run. I, I've and, heard of um, him. Yeah, he's a cool guy. I had nine drivers, uh, and Dale was one of them. He was going to run one race. It was his first race back since his retirement. And, you know, I'm a brand new crew chief. Uh, and I worked with Dale in the past, but we didn't have like a super, you know, we weren't close friends. He's a little older than me. And we we're going to Darlington, South Carolina, which is still where the roots of NASCAR live. It's one of my favorite tracks. And I knew I was on a one-year contract. Um, that's how all, uh, my entire career in NASCAR, I've been on contracts, kind of like, like a professional athlete, athlete, right there. Everything's the company's option. You have option years on your contract. You have non-disclosure agreements. It's so you can't team jump. Um, right. so you're, you know, your destiny. Anyway, I was on a one year crew chief contract with their option to pick me up next year. And I figured, I figured my career would progress. Only if, uh, you know, Dale was impressed with the way I ran the team and when he drove. So I made damn sure that that car went real fast at Darlington. And uh, I'll never forget the race went off without a hitch. He had a ball. Um, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, was actually his work for him. So we were all kind of pretty nervous. I was super nervous. He had so much fun being back in. He was very nervous. You know, he had so much fun getting back in that. He got out of the car and went to the parade. Um, we sold out Darlington for the Xfinity race. They were chanting his name for finishing fifth in the race. He was on cloud nine. I, you know, couldn't have gone any better for me. And on the way back to the garage, I, I dipped off from my team to take a leak. And uh, I popped back out of the bathroom and I was headed to where my car should have been in tech line. And it wasn't there. And I looked at the big black hauler, which is a NASCAR hauler, just to, in time to see my car going up on the lift gate to go in. And that's, you know, that was a Saturday race and I had to wait till Tuesday. And I, the people in NASCAR were smart enough to know that they probably weren't going to throw me out at the racetrack with Dale Jr. Because he's, he's NASCAR Jesus. Um, but, <laughs> or he but was they, then. Yeah, but they might go slap my wrist later on. So I got to wait till Tuesday and uh, we tore it down and we were almost, we were, we were tearing the car down. And, and you know, they might have found one little thing. And that made them a little bit angry. And then it was, all right, let's tear some more. And the farther we got into it, the more they found. And they we find had the, one little thing. They're just oh, yeah. going. We had the car parts laid all across the NASCAR tech center. And the series director, who's a, who's a really good guy. Um, he's an older gentleman. He likes to be, especially younger crew chiefs like me. I was the youngest crew chief in the series at the time. And he knew what I was doing. 
and he knew why I was doing it. And he gave me a really good tongue lashing like your dad or your uncle would. <laughs> and then he put his hand on my shoulder and squeezed it real hard and whispered in my ear, I would have done the same damn thing. And he <laughs> said, put it all in the truck and go home. You're fine. They didn't give me a penalty. That, but man, for eight hours, I sweat. I thought I was done. But it, it was a, a live and learn. And there's some of those tricks that every single time I brought a car back to the racetrack, certain officials would check certain things. So, yeah. That's how you get one tour all the way to the, the last bolt. You're probably not going to tell me, but I want to know what you did to that car to make it so fast and they couldn't find it. You just can't see certain, you know, there's certain things you want to back out and there's certain places you want to let air through once the car starts driving. And there's certain things that can be adjusted accidentally, quote unquote, by a pit crew member during a tire change. And then there's certain things when you're pushing the car to the grid after it goes through tech inspection that you can slam a knee into or a pop rivet that falls out. Or when you're putting the driver in pre-race, things get moved around. I mean, you can be sneaky as you want. You just got to be able to get away with it. Okay. I mean, it might be difficult for some people out there to in podcast land to kind of understand what you just said, but I, I get it. I mean... And we're not talking about like a huge, huge advantage. We're not talking like, you know, an extra 50 horsepower in a motor. No, we're talking no, no, no. like something that might give you a 10th of a second a lap. Yeah. Which... You're just usually talking about counts of downforce. Um, and, and these, these cars are so close nowadays. Everything's built so close that yes, a little, uh, an extra 30 to 60 thousandths here and there on a body panel that gives you an extra 10 counts of side force on your right side that lets you free your chassis up, you know, one more percent. Well, a looser chassis is generally a, a faster chassis. That can be all the competitive advantage you need for a 10th of lap time over a 60 lap run, which equates to 10 positions. And that's, that's how, how much it comes down to it. So racing is a game of tenths. Yeah. I, when, and once you find all the tenths of a second, you got to go look for those hundreds of a second and those get real expensive and real time yeah. consuming to find. Yeah. You stack enough pennies, you make a dollar. And that's, I mean, that's part of, that's part of the allure of the sport. That's part also to me, part of what eventually can wear you down where if you, you better give your whole life to it and you better, you can't fake passion and you, and if I'm being 100% honest, if, if you're, le you're leading a team of people, and that's really why I went into the sport. I love leading people and I love being on a team. I played a lot of team sports growing up and I feel like as a leader, you know, you want to lead, you want your guy, you want to lead the way you want your guys to act. And towards the end, I, I just didn't have the, my, my fire went out a little bit. I didn't have the passion for it, um, that some of my peers did. I wanted to go home to go see the cows and, you know. That's what, that was, that's kind of what happened. I still love racing and I'll end up back at a dirt track, helping some kid for sure. Uh, I don't really have any desire to drive, but I, I love helping people and especially kids. So I'll end up working on something. So you've never, you've never been a driver. You've never wanted to drive. No, not really. Um, I've got to ride, uh, with Dale for 50 laps at Bristol in a two seater. Um, this year I was the only one with narrow enough hips to jump in our car to drive it back around during the race. So I drove it a couple of times here and there, just putting around, but I don't know the, I don't know. I just never had any desire to drive. I had my, my desire was how can I make this thing go faster? How can I make it handle better? How can I put it back together once somebody wrecks it? Okay. What's, 
What's the most challenging racetrack to prepare a car for? Oh, this year it was Chicago Street Course because we, <laughs> man, we knew nothing. Most tracks we go to have, uh, they have computerized scans where we can run in our models and they were still welding up sewer manhole lids when we got there and repaving and changing configurations. So it was, it was very much an equalizer. It was how fast can you learn and adapt? Um, and the way that where our haulers had to park and where we had practice, we didn't have our normal resources. And that was, that was the biggest challenge. And then we had torrential rains. Um, they changed the rules right in the middle of the game. They actually, they ended that race short of halfway, which is, isn't even in the rule books. Um, that one was pretty challenging. <laughs> uh, you just didn't know, you didn't have any way to, any way to prepare. And and my experience with street courses, which is very limited, um, would be, I guess, kind of limited to a, an event they do for karting called the Rock Island Grand Prix. They sure. do it in, in Davenport, Iowa, Quad Cities. They close off part of downtown and do a little street race. And the challenge we always had at Rock Island was the track would rubber up, like, from the first practice session when they'd open, I think, Friday, to the end of races on Sunday, the track would change so much in between sessions. It would rubber up and rubber down way different than a racing surface. Did you run into that at Chicago? Um, yeah, because we had so much rain. So we were on, we NASCAR does have rain tires now for certain events. And so we were on rains and then on dries and just the, the rain tires are super soft compounds, so they would lay rubber down. And then between our practices, the cup guys would go out and practice, and they're on a different compound, which would move rubber around. Um, but that's not super uncommon to what we fight in a lot of a lot of weekends. You know, we go to these tracks that haven't seen action for six, eight, nine months. So the track is very green and abrasive, and you'll lay rubber down, and your car will do one thing. And then by the time you come back to the next, you know, just progression in the schedule, so you probably practice first come back to qualify there's been other series whether it's trucks or cup out there that'll change you know temperatures change everything's just always changing so you have to really rely on your notes what you know what your gut tells you certain you know all the tracks are different compounds right we have concrete tracks we have asphalt tracks well an asphalt track in darlington south carolina has a lot more sand in it than a asphalt track in kansas which and is they they act they, much different. Yeah. So going to eat track, tires. Yeah, absolutely. Tracks where tracks in places where the ground freezes, you know, they'll get really rough. Every track's got character. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we can't hit this one corner just like we like to, because there's a bump on the damn driving line. Been there, yeah. I mean, that. there's a bump in the one at Vegas that uh, people drive around, even though it's faster to go through it, but you'll tear your car apart. You'll knock your eyeballs out of your heads. If you hit it hard enough on low air pressure. So, yeah, there's a lot of that. What, um, if there is, I guess in Taylor's perfect world, if you got a job offer from blank racing season or blank racing series, what series would you want to go race? Like, where would you want to go crew? Would you want to go back to NASCAR? Would you go to Formula One? Would you do like a trophy truck? No. Yeah. I don't know. Um, Man, I just want to go to the dirt track again on Friday nights and have some friends, uh, some fun with my buddies, I think, and not, not be, I mean, pressure is great. Pressure is what makes diamonds, but you have to have a healthy work-life balance as well. So I don't know. 
I, I, I'm going to, I'm just stepping back from racing for now to, to get my bearings and to see, see where it goes. I really have no desire to go to formula one. I think technology is cool, but, uh, IndyCar series is pretty cookie cutter. Don't really have any desire for that. NASCAR. I've done it. I do love sprint cars, but man, those boys live on the road. Uh, it's a young man's sport for sure. You're talking 20 year olds. There's usually three man crews. Everybody's got their CDL. You race, you pile back in the truck, you drive, you race, you pile back in the truck, drive. My best friend, uh, he was a crew chief for Casey Kane Racing for a while. He now works on the NASCAR side, but that's, you got to be young and be able to sleep in contorted positions and, you know, so I don't know. I, I don't know how to answer that question. I, like I said, maybe just some dirt track stuff here and there, something local, sleep in my own bed, help somebody out that wants help. Is there a race series? Is there kind of racing you'd say, hell no, I'm out? No, I think it's all, all pretty fun. Um, I don't know. There's so much racing. I've been around some of that stuff. We would run some races, uh, like where Xfinity series only was in certain events and there'd be some, like we, we would go to road America, which is in Wisconsin and like the Lamborghini series would be there and stuff like that. And the Miata series, um, some of that time trial stuff. That's not really like head to head racing. I don't have any passion for. I like the driver against driver stuff. Now, I say that, I think rally racing is absolutely badass. Um, and the rally cross stuff is cool. So I don't mean that, but the asphalt, like time attack stuff doesn't really do anything for me. And, and, and I can kind of see that, but I also see it from the driver point of view. Like, I just want to go out on the track and test my core sure. and not worry about other idiots crashing into me. And yeah, I, I get I, that. I get that. I really like race cars where the driver has to carry his manhood to the track in the wheelbarrow in front of him and you drive with the right foot and the brakes don't matter. Like, that's what I like, right? Like, turn the steering wheel right to go left, stand on the gas and throw it sideways. Then most of that happens on dirt tracks or rallies. Like, that's cool to me. I don't know. When I want to get my heart rate really going, I've got a turbo razor. It's like, it's several years old. Yeah great tool for the ranch because i i've got some acres i've got like seven thousand acres out here yeah and i maintain a lot of trails like i've got probably about 14 miles of trails that i keep reasonably smooth i mean reasonably smooth for the turbo razor i mean with when you got two feet of suspension travel everything's reasonably smooth even at yeah. five yeah um and that's that that always gets my heart rate above 120 whether i'm blasting blasting down the trails on the ranch or i'm out hooning around on the county roads around here yep sliding around corners at 65 75 miles an hour just laughing and smiling all crossed up and sideways big rooster tails and just hoping there's nobody coming around the corner oh yeah i mean go google some uh like kyle larson just put a video the other night on x or twitter whatever it's called from his qualifying lap wherever they were for his new high limit series you know, there's no way you breathe for those two laps. I mean, you're talking about 900, 950 horsepower strapped to a thousand pound car. And the only thing keeping it on the ground is that big wing. And you just stand on it. I mean, and don't lift and kick it sideways and slide through the corner. I mean, those guys, I have, I have a lot of respect for those guys. I know a lot of them personally. Kyle Larson's one of the best, but there's a lot of good ones. And if you just want, just go Google some of that in-car footage on some of those things. They're insane. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. We've, I guess we've talked about cars and racing <laughs> long enough for a ranching podcast. 
Sure. Uh, <laughs> well, that's all right. Not everybody has to like everything. Um, so you grew up on an apple orchard. What's your favorite kind of apple? Uh, man, I'm Macintosh kid. That's what, that's what made Addison County was the Macintosh apple. Um, app, uh, the other ones I would like to, I grew up like with all the weird, I liked all the weird apples. I don't like Granny Smith's and all those really sweet ones they grow now for the grocery store. I like the Empire's Macintosh, uh, a lot of those heirloom brands, I guess, but yeah, we were big, I mean, we, there was like a big co-op in our little town of Shoreham. And there was, I don't know, I had to, I feel like there had to be over 15 different, maybe more, maybe 20 operate, you know, apple orchards, op, family owned operations in our town. And we would have a huge, um, influx of, it was Jamaican immigrant workers that would come pick the apples and every farm had a crew quarters, um, for those, for those guys, uh, when they would come up for harvest season and our town did a big apple festival and. There was a 5K run. I remember my watching my mom run in that. Uh, I was pretty little, you know, for most of the apple orchard stuff. I did a lot of watching tractors shuttle bins of apples around and forklifts and loading trucks. Um, I did a lot of eating gra- eating apples. Um, so I don't quality, have quality control. Exactly. Yeah, two or three green apples will make your belly pretty sore. But yeah, between. Apple orchards and dairy farms is what Addison County, Vermont is made of. And they just run, it's like a Norman Rockwell painting. They just run fence to fence with each other. It's beautiful. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. It's, it's been a minute since I've been back to that part of the world and I've never been in New Hampshire. Um, and you're not the first guy that first person I've had on the show from New Hampshire. And it sounds like it's really great for about six or seven months out of the year. And then it's just cold. Yeah, I'm from Vermont, not New Hampshire. Uh, sorry, they're, New Hampshire's they're, like upside down Vermont. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So my town, my town. In fact, the first farm I lived on two different farms growing up, but we were right there on Lake Champlain, which divides Vermont from New York. So we okay. get a lot of lake effect snow, and we had five seasons. We had mud season between winter and spring for sure. And uh, yeah, when I graduated high school, my parents actually sold their whole operation and they moved to Georgia because I don't blame them. My dad was tired of feeding cows in the snow for our brood herd. And it's tough. You know, I grew up on a dirt road. The only roads that were um, paved were the state roads. And actually, I just was in Kansas not too long ago, duck hunting. And it didn't didn't seem much, much different road wise than south, uh, southeast Kansas. But I yeah, I think, say, it, you- I think it wears on somebody. You must have been in the eastern third of the state because the western third is is different. Really? Yeah, I was yeah. in I was in very southeastern Kansas. Okay. Yeah, southeast Kansas probably looks a lot like. Well, it doesn't look a lot like where I am, where I'm where I'm at. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So southeast Kansas, probably where you were, they normally get. I'm just gonna say thirty five to forty inches of rain most of it and i get half that and i'm just a couple hundred miles west i know they i think that is the norm for them for rain i've i was duck hunting right so we needed the water and the guys there had been talking about what a just bad duck hunting year it was just because of lack of water and a lot of the dirt tanks were just completely dry and they just hadn't got moisture um but yeah it was doesn't look like the picture behind you it looked like a lot of yearland country um yeah, it's cool. A lot of cows. I saw a lot of cows. 
to be fair, this was um, like September 2022, I think. So, gotcha. I mean, yeah, it was dry when I took this picture. Yep. But behind me is also beaver ponds. And those guys oh, okay. are grazing right on the banks of the beaver ponds. And it's just amazing. As dry as it was and has been here, I've got more water in that creek that those beaver ponds are holding up than I ever had. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. How do you, do you like beavers? I do like beavers. Um, maybe I have a, I have a second love for beavers now. My, in my childhood, the road I grew up on, uh, which most of my childhood, I really remember helping on the farm was the beef cattle side. And I think the same little river or creek crossed underneath that road, maybe four or five times. And it was generally my spring project to try to knock out the beavers dams that were in every single culvert. And I had a love hate relationship with them. Um, I do think that they have their place in nature and I have three creeks on my little operation here, um, that man, I've been trying to raise the water table back, back up really. And I think I hate to say it, but I wouldn't mind a beaver too, if I could control them to help me with that mission. Um, I think they have their place in nature. I think we've sped up water way too much around this great nation and it's just, it goes out to sea faster too fast. Okay. I mean, th there's, there's something there. You said that, you know, we've sped water up too much and I agree with that. And I think the way we did that is because all the Europeans in the 17 and 1800s liked beaver hats. So sure. we killed 600 million of them in North America to make beaver hats in Europe. And you know, so that happened a couple hundred years ago. And it takes a while to kind of see those effects in the world. And yep. like I said, you know, for clarity, it's been, God, I can't even remember when the last time was I even drove past North Carolina. It would have been at least, let's see, I got out of the Navy in, uh, in aught six. So it probably would have been, it's probably been 19 years since I've even seen any part of North Carolina, even from just the other side of the line. So don't know what it's like there, but here. When we, when we go out, we clean these canyons out or, you know, looking at our creeks and rivers through my life. And, you know, I'm, I'm about 10 years older than you are. So I can, you know, and it's, it's really cool once you get into your thirties, because then you've got some observation, right? You've yeah, got, absolutely. You, know, you definitely have a 20 year history. You can be like, I've looked at this shit for 20 years and this is what I saw then. This is what I see now. And this is where it's going. So this Creek behind me in the picture, I've talked about it on podcast several times. I got beavers there. I call it middle crossing. And back in the eighties, when I was a little kid, I had a little 70 CC Honda four wheeler. Okay. Didn't even have suspension, just had balloon tires on it. Oh yeah. Yep. I could drive across this bottom and not even get muddy. Okay. Like no mud. There was, I mean, there were some soft spots. Yep. So over the years of good grazing management and brush control, we cleared all the trees out on that canyon, all the way to the headwaters, because it's on the ranch, and all the way to where it goes off the ranch to the neighbors. So we've got like two and a half miles of this creek. And um, it was sometime around 2014, 2014, 2015, these beavers showed back up. Hmm. And we had a wildfire in 2016, got rid of the rest of the trees. I did a big tree clearing project, went up and I had an excavator going up and down canyons for two years. Like I, I sat in that thing for a thousand hours in two years and just ground up trees and <laughs> it was, it's, but what I'm getting at 
is every canyon I went up and cleared all the trees out of, I could come back two days later and there's a trickle of water down it. Yeah. So I think by getting rid of the beaver, I think we drained, we drained a lot of the water that's supposed to be held in the hills and in water tables and we sped up the water, right? So I live about seven, eight miles away from the ranch down by a little town called Sun City. There's 50 people that live down here. If you've never heard of it, don't worry about it. But it's probably the most famous small town in Kansas because everybody knows Busters. Gotcha. Now, down here in this river bottom where my house is, it's broad, it's flat. I don't know, it's, it's over a quarter mile wide, this river bottom. But the river is, I mean, it, to call it a river is very charitable. I mean, if it was anywhere east of here, they'd just call it a creek because that's basically what it is. Yep. Now, I, I grew up in this house that I'm living in, yeah. okay? So there's some history down here, right? Yeah. I can remember going down to the river with my mom as a little kid, close to 40 years ago, and the riverbank being less than 12 inches, just right down to the river. Now it's three feet. Heck yeah. Okay? And that's been 30, 40 years. So this creek behind me, you remember how I said it used to not have any water in it? I used to be able to just ride straight across there on that tiny little four-wheeler. Now, where I used to ride that four-wheeler across, it's about five foot wide with water and about three foot deep. Beavers did not dig that out. I promise you the beavers did not dig that out. That soil eroded and went downstream. And what what stops soil that's mobile in water, you have to stop the water. You have to slow the water down. And what in, and nothing in nature does that. The only thing there's two, there's the only thing that slows water down is some kind of a dam or weir or check structure. Yep. So my theory is there, I mean, when there were 600 million beavers out here in the plains, a lot of this used to be water, like probably 25% of the great plains used to be underwater with beaver bogs and beaver ponds. Anyway, you're right. We've totally messed up our, our water by getting rid of all the beavers. And I think it'd be really cool to see some beavers back in North Carolina. Are there anywhere, are there any of them anywhere close around you that you know of? Or Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's beavers. You know, I don't have to go very far east from here. And I start to get into big uh, timberland all the way to the coast, like the pot, the sandy soil, the pine timberland, a lot of low country timberland. That that's what it is. It's kind of swamp timber. Um where those guys, I mean, they manage water that, you know, everything's, I wouldn't say it's all diked and levee, but there's a lot of, you know, they're having to dry blocks out just to go in there and harvest them. And I know there's still plenty of beavers around, around there. I know some people not too far from here that have trapped beavers. So I don't know if I could bring one back on, but if one waddles back on my place, I'm probably, it's, he's going to stay for a while. Yeah. I think the only advice I could give you is just to say, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. So it's funny you say that because that's been the motto. Um, this is kind of one of the wins for conservation, which is conservation is one of the pillars in our place. And we now have bobwhite quail again, a wild bobwhite quail. I did not put out any birds and I have, I, for the first time heard them last year. And then I flushed a couple of coveys. And then just like three days ago, I was driving around. I flushed up one bird. He went in the hedgerow. I could see him. He could see me. I was using the Merlin app to call to him i was trying to get some good pictures but he was pretty hidden but yeah that's 
I, I built the environment and they came back. Same thing with turkeys. This will be the first year that I probably will harvest a gobbler on my property. I've shot them down the road at some of my dad's land and stuff like that. But when I bought this place, I could not find a turkey on it. And we've since, we've seen some broods come through and I've seen some little birds make it. And I, and now I've seen the same flock and it's bigger and bigger. And now I've seen some Jake's turn into Tom's and man, I, I, that is so fulfilling to me. I know it's hard. I know one way you can monetize it, but, uh, it's we'll super get to that later. Yeah. It's so fulfilling to me. Um, man, beyond the, the dollar value, uh, that's, that's what it's about. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. My wife, my wife probably gets wore out with me running back in here in the barn and being like, I saw quail or I saw turkey, but feel like I did. I feel like I had a small part in helping make this place better. Right. And maybe it's, it's not mine. It's just my turn. And, and if I, I want to leave this place, whoever it gets left to just be in this beautiful wildlife haven, that's in sync with a little farming operation as well. You just said some, you just said a really good quote and I really like it. I'm, I'm writing it down. I stole that from some, nothing I say is original. I am, <laughs> but it's got, it's probably either Logan Pribino said it, Clay Connery said it. It's, I listen to everyone, every, I listen to 16 hours of podcasts a week. Somebody else said it. Don't give me credit, but I'm pretty sure that came from Clay. Maybe. Sounds like something he might say or something that might be said on his show or. Hasn't been said on this one yet. So I know, okay, you, didn't, I know you, you didn't hear it here. Okay. Well, don't give me credit, please. Somebody else smarter than me said that, but I, I really like that one. It, it's, a, it's a good line. Um, what kind of turkeys do you have there? Uh, Eastern. You know, what's really funny is growing up in Vermont, we had um, between our farm and then the land next to us, which was my grandparents at one time. We ran on around a thousand acres, uh, which is pretty sizable for a Vermont operation. And I bet we had three to four flocks of birds, turkeys, individual flocks in excess of a hundred birds. Uh, we had a spring and fall season. I turkey hunted really big. Um, and, but it was so easy, so easy. Now getting a deer was much harder. We only had one buck tag. Um, our deer did, our deer were very big body wise did not have big racks. So turkeys were super easy. Deer were a little more challenging. I grew up hunting both of those moved down here. You get like. You can shoot six deer a year and then go buy more tags um, and they're everywhere and it's not hard, but turkeys is, is quite the feat. You have to be a, a pretty good turkey hunter. And I found out that the birds were introduced in this back to the States about the same time. But what I've been told is, um, I mean, all ground nesting birds in North Carolina, the snakes, raccoons, possums, every, um, everything we have down here, it's so much tougher on ground nesting birds, surprisingly. Then in the Northeast, they, we just don't have the predation for ground nesting birds in the Northeast. That's what I've been told. I think I heard that on a podcast too, but it makes sense. And, um, that's, yeah, it's definitely, I definitely see less birds down here, but they're making a comeback for sure. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I really got to pee. Me too. Take, we need to take, take a quick break. All right. We'll sure. be back in a second. All right. I drink way too much coffee on podcast mornings and you'd think that you know, after doing like 155 of these, I learned something, but I guess, guess not. I yeah, guess I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big black coffee guy myself. We have a couple cups every morning. I like mine black with real heavy cream in it. Yeah. Nope. Just straight black for me. I'd, I'd use raw cream from the grass fed dairy down the road, but I love Lloyd. I love you, but your cream is just 
really expensive or I use way too much of it, one or the other. <laughs> so uh, we've, we've talked about everything but your cows. Sure. So let, let's, let's talk about your cows. What kind of cows do you have? Oh, I have just some commercial cows. They're, some of them are black. Some of them are red. Uh, they're all kind of Angus-based. No, they're all Angus-based. Uh, the black ones, there's a couple purebred in there, a couple registered. Um, they have a little good, a little bit of Gelvy in them. Um, so probably an eighth Gelvy, which would be like the Gelvy Angus cross was called a balancer. So I think there's a balancer bull. Um, they were some, that was a set of commercial heifers I bought to start out with. Um, picked up some red Angus last year. Uh, yeah. So it's more about uh, the type of cow, not necessarily the the breed to me, um, you know, function over whatever else, you know. Uh, so I guess that's kind of where I was getting at is like, tell me about your perfect cow. Yeah. Our perfect a cow, a uh, thousand pounds, 1100 pounds. That's all they got to be in North Carolina. They don't have to carry a lot of body fat to stay warm through the winter. Um, you know, the wean well over half of their body weight on grass alone. We don't feed any, we, you know, we will supplement a little protein to, if we're feeding hay or marginal feed, but. We grazed 330 days this year. We could have gone, we could have gone 360 if I wanted to, but I was trying to correct a mistake I made last year. And I, I'm not against feeding hay um, when that's what the market calls for. And we had a, we had a bumper crop of hay around here this year. So I was able to get a lot of really high quality hay, pretty cheap. Um, so I chose to do a little bit of hay feeding as a, as a, a little land restoration um, so I bale grazed a little, a little pod, about four acre piece for a couple of days, uh, about it, a, 15 days. And that's correcting the mistake. Like, I, no, that one, that one's actually, um, no. Okay. So the mistake is last year, I felt like I turned out a little too early and I say turned out we were feeding some hay. And once you, once I put my cows on green grass and we started moving, everything was so washy that those cows were just really loose and I couldn't get them to eat. You know, I could put a bale out there, but they weren't going to touch it. So I saved over some of my stockpile this year to be able to kind of go to that first, uh, when we start grazing and, um, you know, and have a little more dry matter in every bite as well as, as well as have some really good stockpile to go back to. If I feel like we're getting on just green stuff or those cows are real loose, I can go calm down their rumen a lot, put them back on, back on some standing stockpile. Cause it's really hard. I mean, I can, I've set bales out there when you're really rolling on some good green stuff and they just look at it like, yeah, no thanks. Or they'll try to use it as bedding. Yeah, that just, was, th that, that was what I felt like I did wrong. Not wrong. I just felt like those cows were loose. Um, their rumens were on fire last year while we were really green through the spring. Just for clarity, when you're saying the cows are too loose, you're looking at the manure. Yeah. Yep. It's going right through them. I mean, I just want to make sure everybody else got that. Yeah. 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 The, yeah. You just, I was trying to get it firmed up. Um, so I say that we, my goal this year was to, uh, was to, was to graze year round. And that was what I made my plan for. And then the hay market, uh, it was able, like I said, I was able to capitalize on some really high quality hay. Uh, that I was able to get cheap and get put away and dry. Um, so I used, actually, there's two different deals. And that's why I went to, a, I went to a November. We, we hit this micro drought generally the last four or five years. It's been a pattern end of summer, early fall drought. 
Um, so I chose to, when we finally got some rain, do a little bale graze on about four acres where I had a, a lot of legumes and I wanted more grass. I used the legumes as the protein supplement for the, for the dry grass hay. Um, that grass was a little more mature. It had a lot of seed heads in it. And I was hoping they would seed it down, which they've done. And it would help fix that, that portion, that hillside specifically. Um, but twofold, it really allowed my stockpile. We get a pretty good little fall bump here. Um, the second growing season, if you will, we'll green up in the fall if we get the rain. So it allowed me to, it allowed me to grow my fall stockpile up. And then we, we went ahead and, and we just strip grazed um, the stockpile all the way back around till, oh, what's today? Today's the 16th till uh, 12 days ago. And I still have some hay and a different, I uh, had some covered hay. And uh, we just started calving and I wanted those cows closer to the barn. Um, and again, I could have went right back around on my stockpile. I didn't take everything all the way down. And I, I, I chose to, hey, let's just feed on some unrolled hay here in this other field that needs a little restoration. We have the hay. Um, I don't have any permanent hay structure, right? This is just tarped hay that I put up on logs. So it's not going to last forever. I've got it. It's, it's very pretty nutrient dense hay. We'll feed it and we'll allow our spring flush to get ahead. That's kind of my plan now. So, so yeah, that's, that's our cows. They do it on dry hay, uh, legumes as their protein supplementation. Um, I've, pro I've priced my protein supplementation about every way. I think I could, uh, obviously grazing those, that clover I've got is the most cost efficient, but I could also bring in a little alfalfa if I needed to, to supplement that, that hay if I needed, but I haven't, I haven't needed to the last two years, which is cool. Okay. Uh, I wanted to, wanted to back up just for a second. You talked about like a second bump, a second growing season. Yep. And I'm, I'm wondering what your grass is like, if it's primarily cool season grasses, or if you've got some warm season grasses, you're going to get during the summer Because here, you know, I, yeah, that second bump, the, the second growing season or the rump season, it's always, it's way more dependent on moisture. Yeah. Then my normal spring growing season where I'm going to grow my warm season grass. Like, so the last couple of years we've been so dry in the fall and winter, I haven't had my second growing season. And generally I can almost depend on having enough cool season grass. Okay. Depending on stocking rate, I can grow quite a bit of cool season grass, which depending on my stocking rate really helps out the supplement bill. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, you can't count on that second bump here. Like I said, it, I, I would, I don't think there's, we don't think we have weather patterns anymore. I personally think we just have weather events, but the one pattern I've seen after charting it for a couple of years here is we hit this drought, July, August, September here, pretty, and I call that summer slump for us. It's so hot. Not much is growing at all. We will get, we can use some crabgrass or some summer annuals, some warm annuals. Like I've used sorghum Sudan grass to get through that. But actually, I feel like that's our non-growing season and, and we can grow right through December and January and February. It just slows down if you manage your grass right. And I've been able to do that. You just have to plan for it slowing down. You know, you have this huge green up. I know we're not technically in spring, but it's 70 degrees. It was 70 degrees yesterday. My soil temp is up at 58 to 60. Um, we're greening up fast here. That's why I... I know like it would almost be considered winter, winter calving a lot of places, but we're calving on green grass here. And, um, if yeah, I just in, try, I try to carry Montana, over some of that. Yeah. This is definitely winter, winter calving in Montana. 
Yeah, if you're in Texas and you want to call it spring calving, I'm not going to argue with you. But if you're in Montana calling this spring calving, I'm sorry, sir. It's the middle of February. <laughs> it's still winter. Yep. But yeah, you're right. We, uh, you can't ever count on that. But I, I've, I've generally been able to save enough of my spring grass to help me through summer slump. And I, I'm a really big planner. That just like, that's how I sleep at night is I feel like if I pencil it enough and I've tried to think it through top to bottom that I can sleep well. And I usually have a plan in place. Um, that's kind of why we went to that November hay feeding one. I could put it out. I, I, you know, with that bale grazing, I cranked the tractor one time and put it all out and it wasn't muddy. It's dry. I'm not hurting the land. Um, and then put the tractor away and just move the poly wire with the four wheelers and let the cows do the work. So that's kind of our tentative management plan around here. But again, when, you know, I, I'm not against, I'm not against feeding hay. If that's the, if that's the profitable thing to do at that moment, that's what I'll do. Let's put it that way. In fact, some of this hay allowed me to make some cool decisions. I've got a pen of feeder calves out here that I capitalized on some. I went to Wally Olson's marketing school and with some extra feed, I think there's, you know, there's, that's a really good way to have like a, uh, you know, be in and out of the market on this hand, which is separate from my cow calf herd. Yep. And, and I can put them out there and help utilize a lot of that spring flush, or I can sell them right back into the, the market if I want to. And yeah, if it wasn't for me being a little bit open-minded and taking advantage of some of those hay purchasing opportunities i wouldn't have had the chance to do that so i'm glad i did good stuff i would i was sitting here kind of kind of thinking about does your background as an engineer does that give you a different lens to look at agriculture with than maybe somebody that's has an agronomy degree maybe um Get ready with your, get ready with your uh, noise. Cause I went to that ranching for profit school and, uh, there was a gentleman in there that said something that really resonated with me. He was an engineer from Texas and him and his dad, um, they ran cattle down there and, uh, we were doing that exercise where they say, how would you divide up this paddock and all that? And he put in some fences here and there. And he said that he felt like the engineering side of him was just there to put in the infrastructure to give the, I think he said, to give the artist the brush to paint. And otherwise, I try not to think about this farming too linearly. I try to stand back and observe a lot. And, um, but I try to put in the infrastructure in a, in a financially smart way. Um, and I tried to not over-engineer anything. Um, yeah, I try, to, I try to find the balance between the two, right? Some of this, being a good grazer to me is an art. Um, but you can be a lot better grazer if you have some engineering in place to make yourself a lot more efficient. So that's what I try to dance with every day. Okay. What are your records like? My like, records? What, yeah. What, what kind of records do you keep as far as for your cows and your grass? I'm just, just I'm just curious of how you approach that with your, with your engineering background. Um, I'm glad you asked that. So my, my office is my kingdom. I learned that from my grandfather. This is a business. Run it like a business. Here's another good quote. I'm pretty sure this was Logan Priveno that said this. And if it wasn't, I heard it on some other podcast, but somebody might've put it out on Twitter, but they said, ask me anything. It's my job to know as the, 
CEO or owner, however you want to say, founder. And I believe that. I believe that when I'm driving my four-wheeler around, I should know exactly what it costs me per hour to run that thing. Same with the tractor. Um, I should know know it top to bottom, whether it, whether it's a farming and cattle business or whether it's an outdoor business or whether it's race team. If you're the leader, lead. So I have records for everything. I am a huge Google Sheets guy and I've got a sheet for everything. Um, and I do fight uh, paralysis by analysis sometimes. I have friends that I tell to remind me to get the hell out of the office and go turn the crank and spend some money and farm because there's going to be a cost. There's going to be a cost of tuition. Um, so I fight the balance between that too. Um, I have a friend in Utah that I went to ranching for profit with Malachi. He's a great guy. And, uh, and, and we remind each other of that a lot. You know, we talk and he's like, man, I just, sometimes I sit and I just run numbers and I'm like, I do the same thing. I was like, but sometimes I have to remember to just go turn that crank and get out there and farm. And yeah, I'm going to make a mistake. And as long as I'm learning from those mistakes, there's no failure in that. It's just a, it's the cost of tuition. So I keep very meticulous records. Um, I, I believe you can't manage what you don't measure. So measure the basics, start from there. You don't have to make it too complicated. Cows are simple. The hard part is uh, keeping them simple. Okay. How do you measure your grass? How do you know how much forage you have available? I do the, uh, I've got four sticks that are three feet long that I throw out and I, I just hand harvest. Um, I actually have a video on Instagram of me doing it. I hand harvest it, uh, in that one cubic yard, the paper bag, dry it down and weigh it. Then just do the math. You're a clip and weigh guy. Yeah, I guess clip and weigh if that's what we're calling it. Uh, I mean, this is just one, one of many multiple ways to skin that particular cat. Sure. I have done I, uh, a lot of clipping and weighing. A lot. Like wore out microwaves, drying grass. <laughs> a lot. How um I would so I did it this year. I, I'm I'm new at this, right? Like I'm not I'm no expert in anything. And I'm just trying to digest all this information from all these good people. And I try to look at people who I think are doing it profitably and well. Um and then I try to do little experiments where I can afford to do them. So this this getting away from or, or trying to feed a lot of stockpile this year, I was interested to see how well I could predict it. So I did a clip and weigh. And then to kind of fact check myself um, and to be able to like, you know, am I anywhere as near accurate before I got to the end to say, oh, crap, I'm not accurate was I calculated that all the way into round bales, basically. And then I brought a buddy over who owns a hay business. And I said, all right, look at this. How many bales per acre do you think this makes? And I bought some hay off of him. So I knew his four by five bales are like 800 to 850 pounds. And he was like, well, it makes two bales per acre. I'm like, okay. So there's, there's basically X amount of bales over there. And I just converted that to days. And that was within two weeks of what I had thought stockpile wise was I had calculated and I came out halfway accurate. So, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure when you're only weighing, you know, a square yard of grass, the, the error for margin calculated that far out. You know, you could be off by a couple of days, but I don't know. It was better than not doing it. So we did it and we were pretty close. Okay. Okay. What, um, what was the most surprising thing 
that you learned ranching that you took to NASCAR? And what was the most surprising thing you learned in NASCAR that I also applied to ranching? Sure. They actually have a ton of parallels. Um, probably NASCAR to ranching is the team aspect. And I'm not, I'm very much a social person. I'm a talker. God, I talk way too much. Uh, so even our farm, it's just me and my wife that live here, but we have a bunch of um, high school kids that work for us. And I feel like I'm leading a team. I, I feel like even if those kids didn't work for us, you know, you're always working with the neighbors in some capacity or, or bankers or lawyers or this or that, you know, everything, everything, everything in life to me is a people problem. So it's the people skills that I, I had to really hone in NASCAR trying to be a leader. Not that I, not that they're perfect by any means, but. Um, those people skills that I was in a very professional setting able to hone, I hope will help carry me far, farther in ranching just because, you know, there, I believe we should carry ourselves in a, in the right setting, we should carry ourselves very professionally. Like we are professionals. We're not, we're not the old, old McDonald farmer. We're, we're businessmen and women. And we are, we're trying to lead an industry that maybe society's looked down upon a little bit over the years, which is probably not correct. And, and I feel like to get respect, we have to act respectable. So that's what I'm carrying from my professional career into this. Um, and then what I carried the other way is, is probably the, yeah, the best lesson I carried from ranching and farming and growing up in that environment is, um, I, I think the, the value is in the plan because you don't have control of anything. And that's the same way with farming, right? You can't control the weather. Can't really control the markets. You can't control other people's opinions. You, all you can control is your own actions. So if you have a plan for, for different situations you may be in as best as you can, well, the value is in the planning portion, right? You'll learn and you'll grow when you get to those portions. So where a lot of people would get bent out of shape in NASCAR when a rule would change or when tires would change or, or when change would occur. Um, I don't know. You just got to let that stuff roll off your back. You can't, you can't worry about what you can't control. And if you've made your plan, just adapt and roll on. And NASCAR most likely did not make that rule for you personally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not everyone. I mean, unless your name's Chad Canals, which he probably has his own subsection of the rule book by now. I hope, I hope for some reason, Chad Canals stumbles upon this podcast and listens. Uh, I worked for Chad a couple of times, you know, off and on, and I still know Chad and he's a, he's a good guy. I don't think he's listening to Cal podcast. He's probably busy down there in Daytona right now, but in case he does stumble upon it. Hello, Chad. Well, that'd be cool. Be, be a whole new market for me, for sure. <laughs> um, all right. I don't know how to segue, segue into it very well, but, uh, let's, let's talk about land trust. Oh, land trust. All right. How yeah, long have you so... been hooked up with those guys? couple we do you know how i got hooked up with them so i um go back to my farm for one second so we're here full time i don't have this big professional career that takes up all my time i've been growing and scaling my farm uh, thoughtfully and tactfully um i'm not the guy who's just gonna go take out a huge loan and fill this place with cows uh i'm gonna i approach things a little more conservatively so anyway this is my lot, my past year of really running my numbers super hard. I went to ranching for profit uh, two years ago um, in Billings. 
that gave me the tools to really keep good management records last year to really evaluate everything. Go ahead. Was that the epic ranching for profit billings that like all the TikTok people were at too? No, that was the, that was last year. It was the year before. Okay. The only epic thing about that one was that um, we had just raced in Portland and I had two weeks off. So I rode in the semi from Portland to, and we went through Billings and we just, Trucker Chris pulled over and threw me out the side of the cab and all my bags. And there I sat. And then I walked in out of, out of my race hall and went through inching for profit. Um, yeah. Anyway, man, I got lost. What were we talking about? I don't know. It was a good story. Uh, <laughs> oh, I kept really good numbers. I haven't really grown. I mean, oh, so so the business is this land trust. This is how I got to it. So I know where my business sits. I know where the profit sits for different enterprises. And we have a couple of different enterprises here. Um, but I do know that uh, my issue is scalability. Uh, we're only an hour outside of Charlotte. So land is super expensive. Um, real cropping country. We know that those guys can generally afford to pay a little bit more per acre rent than I can or a cattleman can. I'm working really hard on integrating with some of those guys to maybe graze some wheat around here or some crop aftermath, which I think is a big opportunity. I'm excited. I've got some traction on. But anyway, I, I, I don't have enough land to run enough of any of my enterprises to make a, a really good full-time living for myself. Um, and I've got way too much energy. And I talk too much and I'm into anything and I've got a pretty good professional prowess and pretty technologically savvy. So I was kind of looking for a job, call it my ag adjacent side hustle, uh, credit to Clint Fisher on Twitter for that term. Um, looking for something I could do while I ranched or farmed that I could be here, but, but you use that other side of my brain that I don't get to use as much as I would like, um, on my place right now. So I explored a couple other companies and I heard Nick, uh, Castro, the CEO, DeCastro, the CEO of Land Trust on, uh, Clay's podcast. Um, and I just picked up the phone. Well, I guess I had sent him a LinkedIn message and said, Hey man, uh, my name's Taylor. I'm a little bit of a weirdo. I like ranching and I have this professional background that I'm not using these skills. And I think I could be an asset if I could join you guys somehow. And, we had a couple conversations and I talked to some other guys there and it seemed like it was a good fit. Um, they definitely, they're an awesome group of people and they work in this really cool way with a lot of their workers being remote. So it worked for me um, and they're in a different time zone. So we're in this uh, trial period where I'm a consultant for them. They work in, in cycles, which is, it was a really neat way to work and it's super efficient, which I like. And we're in this first cycle and I have a couple projects that are my projects to that I kind of created and I'm, I'm handling and, and we're taking it from there, but I really have this passion to help people. Um, and it's, it's tough. Sometimes it kills me because not everybody wants help and you have to know when, Hey, the, you know, they just don't want help. So that's fine. Just walk away. But when I can be in a position where generally people want the help and then they'll take everything that I eagerly want to help with, it just, it's really fulfilling to me. So they brought me in kind of on the landowner side or the, you know, the rancher and farmer side I to help, help, help call these people. Like landowner success manager. Isn't that what? Yeah. Yep. That's what. So you're Tom, but for North Carolina. Well, I don't think I'm quite there yet. Um, you know, Tom is Colton's dad. Uh, I work for Colton. All right. Day to day. 
which I really enjoy. Colton's cool. And I've talked to Tom a little bit. I'm jealous that he gets to go visit all the ranches. I'm not so much doing that stuff yet as I'm running, I'm kind of running some economic analysis where maybe ranchers that are already enrolled, such as yourself, you know, we could do some upgrades showing, you know, return on investment of those, um, how we can make your processes better. Um, trying to get involved with, you know, trying to grow. I want land trusts. I think everybody at the company, we want land trusts to be the synonymous term people think of when they think about like turnkey concessionizing your ranch, right? Monetizing the other parts of your ranch that aren't necessarily in your ag operation, right? The hedgerows for bird watching, the yeah. uh, stars for stargazing, the pheasants to hunt, right? Yeah, every it, everybody can think of five things to hunt on the ranch, right? Yep. But it's what else is on the ranch that someone else would be willing to give me a few dollars so they could come enjoy it too? Bird watching, yeah. beaver watching, stargazing, hiking, yep. mountain yep. biking. I mean, there's there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And I think the other cool part, I think it could really snowball, which is awesome. Um, yeah, like it, it also gives you, if you choose to, I, I think the great part about it is, you know, there's, it's non-contract, it's not invasive. You don't give up any rights. You're in control, which is what I don't want to give up any control on my plates. Um, we're, you know, I'm building out my land trust offerings as we speak. I'm waiting on a little bit better weather for, to take some, do some photography, but you don't give up any control. And then if you choose to, you can really have FaceTime with people, which I think sometimes, um, when farmers and ranchers have the time, I think that FaceTime is important so we can tell our own story because if we don't tell our story, we all know Netflix is going to. So I think it snowballs from there. I think it also snowballs into when it becomes a profit center for these farms and ranches. I think it only grows because you can, so many things can branch off of that. If it becomes a true profit center, you might be able to bring a family member back, a kid that can operate the whole thing, or you might change the ways you, you farm or ranch to actually be, you know, to change the ecology a bit, to give yourself some more things to monetize. And that's what I'm really working on hard. I know we have some ranches already that have, have been down that road. They started with just a little hunting. Okay, how do we make this better? We'll bring on some lodging. Now people can stay longer. All right, this is so successful. How do we make it even better? Well, let's, let's grow more pheasants, right? Um, so as I see all these things snowball, I don't see any downside. And, and I see people being happy, being fulfilled. I see, I see putting some power, um, some buying power back in farmers and ranchers' hands. And that's, that's one of my personal goals in life. So. It's a good fit so far. I hope they like me. Uh, I haven't got to meet any of them personally. We have a lot of video calls and, and I, me and me and Colton are always chatting back and forth on the computer, but it's been fun so far. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, you know, I was, I was thought I had a few minutes ago, I think Tom was like the first official hire because it was Colton and Nick that started the deal and like they needed somebody to go out and Colton's like, oh, my dad's kind of retired. Maybe he'll go do it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, Tom being able to go out that not having to go to the office and being able to spend his time on the road, going out to ranches and take pictures and fish and do all the fun stuff. I think that was Tom's condition of employment. That's not a bad deal. I've I mean, heard Nick and Colton say they get jealous of the landowner success managers because those guys get to go out and just have that FaceTime and chat and see it and fish with them and hang out. Yeah. They, uh, they did a, a series with uh, like 
Chip Flory from Out on the Land. And I forget yeah. what network, probably I'm terrible. Uh, yeah, they came out for two days and we just had a ball fishing, just driving around fishing, listening to birds and all kinds of stuff. And I'm thinking, Tom, yeah, you got a pretty sweet gig here, Tom. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pretty awesome. I mean, I, I'm, I'm still kind of, it's hard to explain to my buddies what I do because they just they're like, no, you don't get to do that. I'm like, no, I do. Like I get to run my operation and, you know, I'm in my office anyway, a couple hours a day, I get to work for them and, and I have the flexibility to run out and, and move cows or go help the neighbor if they need a semi-loaded grain hauled and then come back and work at night. And man, I just really found this um, synergy that's, that's really rocking for me and I hope it works for them, but it's, it's been fun and invigorating. Very cool. Yeah. All right. Last question. You ready? Yeah. Hit me. Other than your diesel pickup, because I know you probably, you don't have a diesel pickup. No, sir. Okay. Other than your, other than your full-size pickup, what's your fun toy car that you have to drive? Oh, I'm glad you asked me this. So sometimes I think like a, a really bad habit would be cheaper than the habit I do have, which is I have a fleet of uh, old Fords. So I have a, a 91 F-150 my grandpa bought brand new that I bought off him. I, I don't 77. consider I don't consider a 1991 to be an old Ford, sir. I'm going backwards. I'm going backwards. <laughs> I have a 77 F100, uh, two wheel drive, custom Explorer edition. Camper okay. shelves never the camper shelves never been off it since it came off the showroom floor. I got it off the original owner. Um, like the 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 owners you want to have it. The sweet 90 year old lady that lived around the corner. I mean, it's got the mark right here where somebody held their cigarette uh, for. Out the 30 window. years and it burned out the window and they put all the wrappers behind the seat when i got it um that's an ac cab truck um power steering power brakes my wife drives it she loves it it's got some huge motor in it that we don't know what's done to it it, sh it shouldn't handle a carburetor that's that big but it does um <laughs> so we've just said that we're not gonna crack the motor open to figure out what's what what's been ha gone through until it pops one day but we like that truck uh I have a 75 F-250 high boy that I bought myself as a 30th birthday present. Okay. That's so one of my babies. I cruise around to that a lot. North Carolina has this really cool car culture and all these little towns have these things called cruisins, which you just, they'll say, Hey, like we have one, we have one that's huge, like 15 miles north of here. Last Friday, every month from four o'clock till people go home, they'll be 5,000 cars in this little tiny town of Oakboro, North Carolina. And people are just cruising and you park and you go get ice cream and you walk around and there'll be Lamborghinis to old, you know, Model Ts. There's everything. It's this car culture. So I can't pick one truck. Um, I also have my great grandfather's 56 International that me and my dad, uh, I don't have it. It's not running, but we got it back to restore. My dad's got a 69 F100. My grandpa bought brand new. He's restoring that. Yeah, I have this really expensive habit for these old trucks that I just can't let them rot away. We got to fix them all, save them all. So you're kind of a Ford guy then? Oh yeah, big Ford guy. And I worked for Chevrolet teams for 15 years and I've never owned a Chevrolet product. And I'm super proud to say that. I, I was going to say something about, so you're kind of sound like a diehard Ford guy, but <laughs> Junior only drives Chevys. Yeah, yep. 15 years of Hendrick and Junior Motorsports and all Chevys, but I only ever own Fords. 
That's okay. uh, I mean, to be honest, every manufacturer's got its quirks, and I just was raised a Ford guy, and that's that's the way I've been. So, I was raised a Chevy guy because the Ford dealer's thirty five miles away, the Chevy dealer's twenty. Dad always drove Chevys, and most people around here had Chevys. Yep, and all my best friends have them. Well, when I got out of the Navy and I moved back here, the I went and, like I needed a work truck. I drove around a Chevy Colorado for a couple of years. Like I'm, I'm too large of a person and I'm only six foot and I'm too large of a person for that little truck. So I got rid of that. I actually, I traded it in on a three quarter ton Dodge and that was in 2009 and I've been a Dodge guy ever since. Like, yeah, I only got like three of them laying around here. And <laughs> I tell you what, I own one truck that I, I don't really ever sell things. My wife says I'm a hoarder and I am because I'm a farmer's grandchild. Um, I sold one truck that I regret when I bought this place. I rather than go buy a side by side, I got a 1988 Toyota. It was on 35s lifted, lifted up like three inches. Like they just called them the Toyota pickups. It had the 22 RE in it. That truck would climb the side of a building and flip over backwards. You could not stop it. It had the, it had the, it had like the roll side bed on referred to as the Japanese bed, which means it came in on the West coast. It was just flat black, um, rhino lined on the inside. So you could hose it out. You just pop the CD face off, put some duct tape out, hose it out. So uh, basically uh, my, a Hilux. Yeah. It, well, no, it was a Hilux. They just, the Hilux, I think stopped in like 86 or 84. They just didn't call it the Hilux anymore. It was just yeah. the Toyota pickup. That's the only one they had. My dad had a bunch of them growing up because they'd fit between the rows of apple trees without scratching the sides of trucks. But that was the best farm truck. And I sold it because every time I'd stopped to get gas, people were trying to buy it off of me. And finally, a guy offered me enough money. I, I gave it up, but I missed that truck. You know, I, I've had side-by-sides for probably 12 or 14 years. Yeah. And ever since I've had side-by-sides, people are like, oh, why don't you just buy a Jeep? Just buy an old Samurai. Oh, you need to get an old Tacoma. Like, no, no, I don't want to work on somebody else's old beat up junk. <laughs> well, after owning my John Deere Gator for three years from brand new and not being able to work on brand new junk and having to have the dealer work on it, um, I, I went, I got a Mahindra Roxer. You know what those yeah. are? Yeah. 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 I've seen them a bunch. I've heard, and I heard you say you got one. Like just you, yeah, it costs what a side by side does. But it's simple. It's made yeah. out of real metal. It's tough. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you want to talk about something that's sheet metal, like it's it's thirty two hundred pounds of sheet steel and a deep big diesel motor. I was wondering if you got the diesel one. Yeah, all they uh yeah, and they didn't really do a good job of of, of putting the word out, but between twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three, they went from a two point five liter to a two point seven. Power stayed the same, but you got a you got a little bit bigger of a motor. So gotcha. And if anybody out there is thinking about buying a Roxer, there you're not going to get around in the pasture any faster than a side by side. You're going to be back to like one ton pickup speed in the pasture. <laughs> like it's they're right they ride rough. Yeah, I mean they are stiff and they ride rough. I put an air suspension seat in mine so I can tolerate it through the pasture. But every once in a while, I still hit something and that seat goes to full extension and I bounce my head off the roof. It's happened. 
It just we get it all done here on old four wheelers. So I feel you on the lack of suspension. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I guess what I'm getting at, it's one of those things. Like if I would have listened to what everybody was trying to tell me 10 years ago and just bought like <laughs> two Suzuki Samurais or a Samurai yep. and an old Tacoma, I probably wouldn't have had to, you know, go through the learning experience of a couple of Kubota side-by-sides and a John Deere <laughs> side-by-side and what those repair bills are. But that's, uh, that's what it is. It's a learning experience. And like, I think you, you said something earlier about failures and fail. And I wanted to say this, that there's no such thing as a fail. You yeah, had a just first, learning opportunities, first attempt in learning. You had yep. a first attempt in learning. You didn't have a fail. And I'm not always the best about like seeing the rosy side of it, but I try. Yeah, I try. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I learned every day here, which is fine. <laughs> Luckily, I'm not a quitter, so I'll just keep putting my head down and going to it. I mean, that's how, if you want to know how to make it in racing, anybody that wants to go work in racing, just don't quit. If you can outlast the other guys, because there's going to be days the slog, you got to slog through it, just like everything. Just put your head down and go to work. If just you want to, if you want to win, you better have a good day job. Because, like, <laughs> speed costs money, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, um, we need to get moving out of here. How do you want to end this thing? Hey, it's your podcast. End it however you want. Okay, well, um, man, it's been a hell of a lot of fun. I wish I, I wish we had more time, get some more stories of Junior and Chad Canals and <laughs> Casey Kane out of you, but we just might have well, to wait for uh, another day for that. Yeah, I feel like the longer I'm out of the sport, the more I'll, the more I'll, the farther away I am from the sport, maybe the more I'll divulge, but there's some good stories and maybe I'll just write a book someday. Who knows? I don't know. I'll wait till all my friends are out of the sport too. So nobody gets in trouble, but yeah, it's fun. <laughs> it was fun. I think it's like anything in life. You just got to know your dancing partner and you got to know sometimes when it's time to switch dancing partners. And sometimes it's just time to leave the barn dance. And that's where I was at. So some of my buddies are still dancing. I wish them the best. They're all down on Daytona and, um, We'll have a beer on ice for you when you get back. Are you watching? Like, do you like when NASCAR's on, do you like have to have the TV on and watch or does it just not, do you not even care anymore? It's not that I don't care. Um, it's just that I have a lot of other things going on in my life that I haven't been able to do for the last 15 years. Like I went to a concert last night for Valentine's Day. I brought, took my wife to a 49 Winchester concert. They rip. If you ever have the opportunity, go see them. Um, yeah, we forgot there's the duels are even on, but I haven't had the opportunity to take my wife on a, you know, go do a midweek concert or a Friday, Friday or Saturday night concert or anything in years. So I'm trying to do some catching up on some personal life things now. Um, that's really fun. Rodeos and concerts and just having cookouts with neighbors. Um, trying to get ingrained back in my community because community is so important to me. And that's how we got all these kids around here running around here you know, helping me with work, uh, trying to invest in the, invest in the next generation around here. And yeah, so we're not turning on the TV to watch any NASCAR races. If I'm, if I'm through here on Sunday when the 500's on, I'll probably flip it on. But if, if we want to go fishing, we'll just go fish instead. Very good. Yeah. Great. Very good. Well, I appreciate your time today. Yeah. Appreciate yours. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. All right. Well, Taylor, have a good week and uh, rest of you guys. You guys have a great week too. See ya. Cheers.